the from the eight like 1850, which I don't I, I don't know if Schiller went back to the Civil yeah. War and was like, what is he did? Up? He, he totally he was uh, he fought in the Civil War to take some stats on the stock. Is Schiller yeah. the quantum leap dude? This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. How that week be at? <laughs> I can't even do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I've also realized this week that in order for the market to get back to even all it has to do is go up 2.5 percent per day for 10 days straight oh perfect yeah that's so like, like one of those yeah those uh teenagers calculating how many days it's going to take to be a millionaire yeah, based yeah, on exactly. their options trading when they have one good day and then they're like i will have all the world's wealth in 17 days if friday happens 10 more times in a row we are we're there like we're there. Can we extrapolate that, bro? Extrapolate that. Can we talk just your psyche a little bit? I I'm not ready for the stock market to go up right now. I'd kind of like for things to continue down. Well, I wanted to do one or the other. I don't want it to what? be dancing with wolves. I don't. I don't need Kevin Costner up in this. Like I feel like what it's doing right now is just like just uh, oscillating, vacillating, and um, capitulating a little bit, and. I, I either either like fall out the bottom or let's get back to business up in here. Like I'm tired of this. Well, should we hop right into it then? Do you want to so. do you want to talk about how bad this thing could get? Ooh. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. So there are a couple ways to approach this. Here's what I'm gonna do, start off with. And there there are a bunch of these tables that are going around. Ben has got his table going around in a wealth of common sense. Uh, the guide to JP Morgan's guide to the markets has one, which we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit later, but they're basically looking at historically how long it took from start to finish for bear markets to bottom. Right. And it does the same thing for, for bull markets too. And what's interessante is if you look back, let's see, this one is since uh, world war two, the first one I'm gonna look at, and then we can go a little bit back further, but since world war two, how long do you think? Would you say the longest time for decline was like, so if you look at the peak of the market and then the trough of the market, what do you think was the longest time period? World War II. I mean, I'm guessing three to five years of like just slowly trending down. Is that right? Give or take. Yeah. So it was. It was actually, if you look at the time period from uh, the dot-com bubble crash, is the longest, according to my eyeballing right here. And so that was March of 2000 to October of 2002. So not quite three to five, but it's like two and a half years, right, is about how long that took. Generally speaking, it doesn't take quite that long. And so I'm just as eyeballing, so you can, there might be some actual mathematics going on here but i'm eyeballing this and for the most part we're looking at like year year and a half is like about uh, how long it takes the 
the time period in the great financial crisis was October 2007 to March 2009. So that was like just about that year and a half uh, kind of time period. And it got obliterated. So that was like a 57% decline uh, from start yeah. to finish. Well, so hold on, because I have I have some data here that goes back to the 20s. And it shows two the things. The 2020s? Sorry, the 1920s, <laughs> uh, 100 years ago. And it shows two things. The total down from from peak to trough, like total percent down, and then the duration. If you talk 1937, you have a 61-month downslide. So call that five years, and you go down 60% from peak. And that's on the heels of what happened in 1929, which at a almost a three-year duration downslide, and you went down 86%. So if if we let me better articulate this thought experiment that we're talking about today, if we're just talking about how bad things could get, if you say November 2021 was 1929, the next decade is terrible. We have two really prolonged slides and uh, we go down 86% before we get a little retrieve and then we go down 60% from there. The reason that the post-World War II is important, let's look at both of these because actually I think it's awesome that you threw that in, is because this was the time period back in the, the Great Depression where historically, like looking back, probably even at the time, people were like, the Fed didn't know how to act like a central bank. That's like historically, if you look back, there's... Right. And so this was um, what I think is really interesting about that time period is you kind of look at just with market forces nearly. It's not that clean, but yeah. you just like what market forces would do. You see these extended durations that are like wild. Right. I mean, the period of it was 1929, September 1929, when the peak happened to the market and it didn't come back to hit that peak again until 1945. Yep. Right. I mean, that's a it's an outrageous like length of time. Um, and you had to your point, you had like these two phenomenal drops in there. Um, we haven't seen anything that was like any it were close to that, right? Since World War II. Very true. And that's a great point. But also what happened in if you go back to the the book I read on bubbles, right? Um, RCA, one of the top companies in the United States at that time in 1920, this is from memory, so it won't be right, was trading at like a dollar and a half a share. And in 1929, I think the thing was trading at 450 bucks. I mean, it was some unbelievable growth on the upside. And we witnessed some of that from what I'd say like 2000 or 2012 to 2021 was some of these stocks that absolutely took off. So I think, I think there's more room on the downside for certain companies than there has been probably at least since the 70s well no that's not true there was some crazy stuff happening in the dot coms yeah yeah well in, in if we if we just go to your question the pure question of like how how far could this thing go down i'm going to read off quickly from the same thing you're looking at here just the uh the peak to trough so top to bottom returns i'm gonna do it real fast without yeah. years or anything Negative 86%, negative 60%, negative 30%, negative 22%, negative 28%, negative 22% again, negative 36%, negative 48%, negative 27%, negative 34%, negative 49%, negative 57%, negative 34%, and now we're at, give or take, negative 25%, right? So if we just look at those, I mean, if we're down 
It's a thing around in the 20s has happened a few times, but then you have multiple what a one, two, three, four, five times that we've gone negative uh, 45% or less. And, and there's so many factors right now. That's too aggressive. There are factors right yeah. now that point to what we're looking at so far from a momentum trajectory, other perspective that the great financial crisis drop we're surpassing the momentum of the great financial crisis drop, which doesn't mean we get there, but it's kind of interesting. And that was the negative six, 57% peak to drop. Yes. Yes. And then the negative 49% was the dot-com bubble, right? Yep, so yep. if you, all those numbers you just listed, if you take an average, you get to around a 41% drop that takes around 20 months. So that's probably better. If we talk worst case scenario, it's like everything goes to zero. And that's probably not going to happen <laughs> here, right? Yep. Um, but if we talk average pullback, average bear market return, and you say 41%, well, if you're already down 25-ish percent, this this data is a little stale. But you'd you'd still have room to run. And if really, I should pull up the actual chart, but you're talking late 2001, or sorry, late 2021 is the peak that puts you 20 months after that. I mean, we're well into middle of 2023 as the thing where this might potentially flip. The reason I think that's just interesting more than anything else is it helps frame, it helps your mind think about what could be coming and make sure that you're prepared for that kind of a a worst case psychological assessment. And then, again, not a worst case, but a, a psychological assessment of what might be coming, how many more months you might be looking at red on your uh, stock performance returns. I'm going to drop one more. Okay. One more fact here. Husband advisors. Okay. Now, <laughs> I'm, t- I'm telling you right now, this individual, according to themselves, has perfectly predicted, though not not sorry, uh, has perfectly correlated. Let me say that not predicted has perfectly correlated how far the stock market will drop, and they've done this by saying that the stock market drops to the point where it gets to the greater of either ten percent expected nominal returns. So that means once you get to a certain level then what their predictions would say is that you should expect 10% returns over the next, I can't remember how many years, I think three years or something like that. Or you the market has a 2% risk premium above treasury bonds. You can ignore the detail. Basically, they just have this correlation. And looking back historically, it's like fit like a glove, like freaking Johnny Cochran comes in without the Advil, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, but according to this, this thing should go down to about negative, like negative 70% peak to trough is what they're, is what they're predicting, which means we have like another 50% to like, and what I mean, 50 absolute percentage points, not, not another 50% drop, like getting down to like 70% drop is what they're saying to get to the point where to use their terminology, the market is adequate. Well, okay. So John Hussman, president of um, Husband Investment Trust uh, does great quantitative analysis. I've followed him for at least a decade. And the title of this piece is Estimating Downside Market Risk. I really respect his analysis. It's all fundamentally based. So let me just say that. I'm trying to set the scene here. But what he says is fair value is like a historic 
fair value in some cases where he's using CAPE, the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. And if you look at that metric and some other metrics he uses, we've been in the very expensive territory. I'm talking one sigma and in some cases two sigma above average for like the better part of the last decade. So I think what he's saying, it comes all the way back. It mean reverts all the way back to average is how's the best way to say it. It it would be drastic. It absolutely would be drastic, but that is a fundamentally based projection and I don't have any issue with it. I just don't expect it to be quite that drastic because when you mean revert that drastically, it takes five to 10 years to get there. In my experience, it's very rare that that just happens all at once. One thing that's said in here, we've talked about the sideways markets right before is I'll, I'll just quote something in here. And I'm going to use the word adequate again, because I love the fact that they use the word adequate. Like, it's just interesting. It's not even like fair, fair or fairly valued. There are only two ways to make it adequate. Either prices must decline further or prices must stagnate for more than a decade while fundamentals catch up. Yes. My impression, my impression is that we're likely to see a combination of both resulting in what I've often called a long, interesting trip to nowhere which is not interesting just to be like, if anyone's taking a trip to nowhere, it's not, it's not interesting, but it can be long anyway. This outcome would mirror what investors experienced during 1929 to 1947, 1966 to 1985 and 2000 to 2013. In each case, the S and P 500 lagged treasury bills for more than a decade. That's 50 years out of 84 starting valuations matter. Thank you. And let me tag onto that with a Um, And then I want to talk specifically about those sideways markets, because I think that's there's a higher probability that that happens, that we effectively go nowhere for the next 10 years as earnings catch up to a fair valuation model than it is that we just fall off a cliff to get to fair valuation model like in the next year. Um, So this is a quote from 2001, and it's kind of long, but just bear with me. He says, I realize that the entire tenor of market commentary here is a good investor rides out storms. Hold for the long term and you'll be fine. The problem is that market participants stopped being investors when they accepted the notion that stocks are always attractive regardless of the price paid they paid for them. Though prices have moved down rapidly, I have not seen much evidence that investors have actually reduced their exposure. Yes, they feel the pain, but they're hoping that the pain will end without the necessity of doing anything. Again, the real problem is that they have no concept of value. So I'm biased. That's like, talk my book, right? But what he's saying there is, if you just buy equities with no gauge for if they're fairly valued or not, then you get stuck in these periods where you have to sit around and wait for that to come back to earth you know it went to the moon now it has to come back to earth i firmly believe that you need to buy based on value and if you do that you can be excited about your future returns right now if you're a person that bought the teslas and the arcs of the world like i do think you're in a world of pain for the next decade if you're a person that spots stuff that's fairly valued i think you can have really attractive returns in the next decade here's the issue though i'm i'm conceptually I'm fundamentally in agreement with you. The issue is that according to at least this graph, and I, this graph, and I'm not, I don't know what uh, Hussman has been in investing in. I, I don't know any of that, right? But according yeah. to this graph, 
and what you just said, if you took what you just said just to face value, right, yeah. which is overly simplistic, then you would have lost the last decade of returns because you would have said back in this is showing back in like 2011 that the market was should have gone down 30 percent. Yep. In order to. And so you basically would have said, well, you can't buy at these starting valuations because we expect future returns to be to be too low. So there's going to be a crash. Short the market, don't invest in the market. Regardless, you would have been wrong for a solid 10 years, right? And so I think that's part of the issue. And I'll even, now I'm really, I'm getting way over my skis. Actually, I'm taking my skis off and throwing them down the mountain because this is so ridiculous what I'm about to say. The thing is, what I found to be really interesting, and this maybe is a transition point over to the JP Morgan guide of the markets, potentially, yeah. which I know we want to talk about, is if you look at that period of 2009, to like, I think it was 2012-ish, the just PE ratio, right? PE, average PE ratio for the market was falling, mm -hmm. right? As the stock market was taking off. And that is a, that like combination of things, because typically that's not what you see, right? You see that like multiples come down, multiples being PE ratio comes down when prices come down. Here, prices were going up and the multiples were coming down somewhat aggressively. And this is the skis part. I think that fundamentals may have changed. Like the way that you look at and measure fundamentals, we talked about this a little bit before in the past, may have changed such that the fundamentals, while Husband's like model might technically be correct according to assumptions, the assumptions of fundamentals might be off. Companies might be able to make earnings in ways that like we didn't think that they could before. And that's where some of this stuff starts to get wiggy waggy. Yes. Well, so there's a rise in intangible assets, which we don't talk about much on the pod, but really changes the accounting and um, how earnings kind of come to be. Um, there's also a change in accounting standards. I've actually done a bunch of research on this. I think it's new. I think it's too nerdy for the pod. But if you read Meb Faber's book, Global Value, it talks a lot about how trying to time the market via CAPE ratios does not work. Exactly to your point, Diggles, right? Uh, the Hussman piece says that the stock market was almost too expensive to invest in starting in 2013. And if you were out of the market in 2013, you missed a whole world of great returns. So I don't believe that's the right approach. I'm hesitant to go down this rabbit hole other than to say those are absolutely valid, valid points. And I think you need some deep analysis about what you're actually buying to do it. You can't sit on the sidelines or you're going to get screwed. Are you cool to use this moment to transition over to the JP Morgan's yeah. most recent guide to the markets? Yep. All right. So on a quarterly basis, I think there also might be a monthly version, but I look at it quarterly. On a quarterly basis, JP Morgan comes out with this guide to the markets where they have like 70, I don't know the actual number, but it's a lot of pages and it's just charts. And they're usually really fascinating. They look at like international valuations, commodity prices, um, what would it, blah, 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 blah. Lots, whole lot of stuff. And it's basically just like chart after chart after chart of data. And it's just fascinating. So mm -hmm. that's what we're going to walk through and hit on some, some points. Where I wanted to start, but if you have somewhere more interesting, happy to do that, is on page five of this. It says S&P 500 valuation measures. And they look at six different valuation measures and where we are at the end of September versus the 25-year average. 
I don't know if the 25 year average is the right length of time average, but this is what they yeah. have in there. Uh, and so according to this, this is what I was alluding to earlier. According to this, we're just about at the 25 year average. Now, two things to say to that before. Well, there's lots of things to say to that, but two things I will start off by saying to that is the last per what we were just talking about the last 10 years of this 25 years, someone Hussman could say we're all overvalued. Yep. And so if you, if you look at the average over that period of time, ah, what I think is interesting is the time period before that was the sideways market. And so you kind of have a combination in here of the 25 year average, roughly that's like an, a quote unquote overvalued market, according to, to some folks and a sideways market. And so I don't, maybe the average is fine for that reason, but regardless, that's what they have here. And you well, it on- it's super interesting. So they compare things like uh, forward PE uh, current is uh, 15.2, 25-year average is 16.8. Um, Schiller's PE uh, current is 27.2, 25-year average is basically 28. So both of those say you're slightly undervalued based on the 25-year average. Dividend yield uh, current is 1.9, and 25-year average is basically 2%. So that's in the range. So this actually makes it look like the stock market is fairly valued. And when I say stock market, we're talking about S&P 500 stats here, right? Super interesting. I think where the really fun debate comes in, they even do price to cash flow. I'll just mention that. Current is 115 and 25-year average is 11.2. So all these things say you're effectively fairly valued. Those metrics change significantly, especially if you talk about uh, Schiller PE, if you go back like 80 years, right? Um, if you look at 80 years, you'd say uh, you're way overvalued. The, that 27 figure, I think from memory, I think the 80-year Schiller Cape is going to be in the teens, more like 19 or 18. So it, the time period is so interesting. I don't know why they chose 25 years. I think you could easily make an argument that um, looking back at 25 years is where some of those intangible a- assets and the counting standards have been more consistent. So that's a good time frame to look at. But I think the thing I'd say here is just this is really hard. <laughs> There's We're <laughs> yeah. looking at two different really smart individuals. Well, JP Morgan is a whole bunch of analysts. Hussman probably has a whole bunch of analysts too. And they're saying... Um, contradictory things right now yeah yeah and to the to the Schiller PE ratio point so this is Cape right which you mentioned before yeah to that point you have you have a period of the from the eight like 1850 which I don't I don't know if Schiller went back to the Civil yeah. War and was like what is he did up? He, he totally he was uh <laughs> he fought in the Civil War to take some stats on the stock is Schiller yeah. the quantum leap dude <laughs> yeah anyway so but if you go from like the 1850 until the night, maybe like mid 90s, 1990s, you mm-hmm. basically have this period that you were mentioning where 20 was kind of the upward bound. Like when you got above 20, it, it came back down. But then since that point to now, 20 is more of the lower bound. Like it went way yep. above during the, the dot com bubble, like up to 45 came back crashing down during the great financial crisis, went below 20 down to 15 and then came back up. And so it's, is that maybe partially the point you're making? Are we in a new paradigm because of the way things are measured? I mean, things are measured differently intangibles, as you mentioned. So we know that is true, but are we in a new paradigm where we should just expect this kind of cape 
or since 1995-ish, have we just been in this like super, super duper Cooper hanging with Mr. Cooper bubble? <laughs> Nobody knows. And it's probably not interesting to list, listen to on the pod. Here's what I'll say. If you uh, look at like Hussman or GMOs, seven to 10 year expected returns, they're going to be somewhere between like 0% and 3%. If you look at JP Morgan's guide to the market expected returns based on forward PE projections, they think uh, this is a five-year annualized return. They think the five-year annualized return could look like seven to ten percent. So it's interesting that there's the dichotomy there. What I want to talk about, Dougals, is the graph on page seven, which shows S and P earnings per share on the left side, and then the change in valuations on the right side. So what's super interesting so far is that earnings appear to be holding up strongly. And the way they show this is like, if you look at all the stocks in the S&P 500 and do their earnings per share and then summarize those, you're basically looking at $210 in earnings. Um, And the estimates show that um, not only holding steady, but continuing to rise. So if this is a leap of faith, because if the economy gets really tough, what happens is the earnings that seem like they're basically printed now will disappear. But if the earnings continue to hold strong and the stock market goes down 25%, what's really happening here, the the total price of your stock is a combination of basically two things. It's the earnings growth and then a multiple, like if you're, you know, a PE of 20 or a PE of 15 or a PE of 100, as we've talked about before. So year to date, they're saying the multiple growth is actually negative 30%. The earnings are up 5%. And that's how you get to this negative 25% downfall for the S&P 500. That's what I've been saying for a long time. Like the multiples have been a little higher. But when we go back, if we can tie all these things together and you say, maybe we're in for a sideways market for the next decade, how long that sideways market lasts will be a function of how quickly multiples come back to, we'll call it average levels, and then what earnings do. If earnings continue to rise rapidly, I think we can kick out of that potential sideways market a lot earlier than if earnings stagnate or reverse. It gets to... The thing that we and others have said so many times about this market right now is that it's unprecedented, right? Like it's, it's so different. If you look back historically at when the last time there was a similar ish, like earnings blend, I'll call it meaning that uh, most of earnings was driven by revenue increases versus a while there were margins were contracting, which is what's happening right now. It was 2007. So the post 2007 period, not good right, for the markets. But at the same time in 2007, according to that same, uh, the left the left-hand side of that same uh, chart you were looking at, earnings also went down. So yes. this is a period, like, so it's, it's just like the last time we saw similar earnings makeup to we're seeing right now was not a point when earnings were increasing. And so not that history is something that you can, you know, hit copy paste on anyway, but they're just we're just in an unprecedented time and who the heck knows what we do know is that we have somewhere between a negative expected return in the market 
to a double digit expected return <laughs> in the market. There you go. You heard it here first. We don't give investment advice, but the returns are going to be somewhere between, let's say, negative 50% and, and positive 50%. Use that and invest accordingly. The last thing, I don't know if you have anything else on the JP Morgan Guide to the Markets, but if anyone dives in, if you hit the sub stack and look at all the articles that we talk about on a weekly basis, which we recommend doing, you got to look at page 15, guys. It does uh, yearly returns, and then it has uh, another data point there that shows the worst drawdown during that period. And so as an example for like 2008, the worst drawdown that happened during 2008 was negative 49% but we ended the year with a negative 38% uh, pullback. But it's all that's always such a good graph to look at because you'll see that almost every year, it pulls back somewhere between say 10 and, and 30%. But more often than not, the total year-end returns for the S&P 500 are positive. You know, they're in the six to 10 to 20% positive range. So I think the thing I love about that chart is it just shows you how common it is to have a pullback. Uh, volatility is the price of admission here to getting great returns long-term. And it's nothing out of the ordinary. Those were all the things I had in JP Morgan Guided the Markets. So did you have anything else there? Perfect. I want to pull something out of the fishbowl. Okay, so cool. interview uh, Jerry Seinfeld did recently. And uh, I actually don't have in front of me who asked these questions, but I think this is hilarious. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. So the question is, you and Larry David wrote Seinfeld together without a traditional writer's room and burnouts was one of the reasons you stopped. Was there a more sustainable way to do it? Could McKinsey or someone have helped you find a better model? You know what Seinfeld said? Who's McKinsey? And then the guy goes, <laughs> it's a consultant firm. You know what Seinfeld said? Are they funny? No. And then he goes, then I don't need them. <laughs> If you're efficient, you're doing it the wrong way. The right way is hard. The show was successful because I micromanaged it. Every word, every line, every take, every edit, every casting. That's the way I do my life. I don't know why. I laugh so hard at the who is McKinsey thing because <laughs> Seinfeld's just in a different place. But then also, I this line of questioning just cracks me up. Like he, Seinfeld's totally right on this. Not everything in life is about doing it the most efficient way. And if you have some consulting firm or some business expert telling Seinfeld how to do his show in a more efficient or more profitable way, you don't have a funny show. Well, and especially you don't have a funny show that lasted whatever, like the decade, whatever that thing, that thing lasted. Absolutely. I think it's a, I don't find it quite as funny as you did. I'm just going <laughs> to toss that out there. But I think it's a phenomenal quote. Um, the micromanaging piece makes me cringe a little bit, but I get, but I get like, the premise of what he's trying to say. Like you do the, what I would, my interpretation would be like, you do the work. Like you understand the core of why something's good and you do the work. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it from some like nonsensical fools that come in, not I'm not calling McKinsey fools, but that come no. in that don't understand your core work, right? Just do, just do the work. Micromanaging is like, he is so rehearsed um, for all his comedic acts. Yeah. I think he does a mock-up of the show like 70 times in front of the mirror yeah. with the exact pausing and phrasing and everything. So I don't think he means that in the way we think about micromanaging in business. I just think he's very particular about his process and the way he practices. 
Well, the the other thing is that he's good. Like, even if he means the micromanagey in the same way that business means it, if you micromanage to that degree in business, you just need to be good and right. Because like, true, because people, the process will like make people cringe and like make them angry because it sucks to be micromanaged. But if you're right and it succeeds, people will still stick with you. I mean, it's a little bit of a like a Steve Jobs type situation. It's like people went through a lot of crap and garbage with him because he turned out to be right. But most times when people micromanage, it's because of their own insecurities and not because of something quality, right? Like they they just have such a control freak attitude and just aren't aren't good at it. But he's just good. Like he's freaking good. Well, you know, and now you've got me curious, actually. I know the the stars of that show still really like and respect each other, but it'd be fun to go back and ask Elaine and George and crew, like if it was enjoyable or if Jerry's being so particular about how things were delivered, how things were spoken was like a taxing work environment. That would be. That actually reminds me of one more thing before switch gears. Did you see the US uh, search and general came out this week and specifically talked about um, harmful workplaces and the damage that's doing to mental health? I saw a headline, but I didn't read into it. I mean, I didn't do a deep dive either, but I'd love for the listeners, if they have like a, a longer memory than mine, to tell me if that's something that is unique. Because just the the high level premise of saying the workplace is harmful uh, or can be v- significantly harmful to the health of this country is something I don't remember happening previously. And so does that mean that the world has changed? Does that mean we're more just more aware of how important work-life balance is and how meaningful a boss's relationship with the, their employees can be. What do you think? No, I don't think it's different. Actually, I I think that I think I don't think that fact is different. But I do one thing I do think is different is that as a country we are much more comfortable talking about mental health now. Like there was such a stigma around mental health specifically that I think historically there have been times where we talked about like bad workplaces but not the connection to mental health because we didn't talk about mental health. So what does that mean? Does that mean the workplace is the same as it always was and we're just more comfortable talking about some of the mental health ramifications of that? Or does that mean that because like, especially post-COVID where the lines between home life and work life have become really blurred, that this is a, a somewhat unique problem happening in 2022? I think that people have a went by people here. I mean, workers, um, employees have a different view and different expectations of their employers. That is something that I think has has changed. And the equation I always like to throw out is that happiness, which you can, I'll just equate happiness to the opposite of toxicity or bad mental health situation. Happiness equals expectations minus reality. And if your expectations of your employer go up and the reality doesn't, then happiness will go down. Mental health will go down. And I do think, and in many ways, I'm not saying this is a negative, but I think that the expectations for employers have gone up, right? I mean, we, we discussed before how the, if you just take wages, for example, wages over like the last four or six quarters, like something like that, have gone up more for workers than they did in the previous four decades combined. And I think people are saying there are things that I want from my employer and I will get them from my employer or you will not be my employer. And when when employers aren't providing that, I think that there is a 
a decrease. I may have taken this down a rabbit hole. That you uh, I mean, intended. I, I didn't really want to fight with you today, but I might start one right now. So please tell me I misunderstood because you said wages have gone up significantly recently. Well, but their real purchasing power hasn't gone up at all. So if you're saying the average employer is like, well, I just gave you a big raise. So my expectations for you have increased by 25%. They can't buy 25% additional house or 25% additional food. No, I'm saying the, the expectations from the employee, not expectations from the employer. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm saying like employees are demanding more things as indicated by the fact that wages have gone up more in the past few quarters than they have over the past few decades. I think I see. Em- employees are just demanding things. And if your expectations are going up and the to even to your point with like inflation there, if the reality of what your employer is providing isn't to your expectation. Yeah. Right. And then if you see that day in and day out, right, you have compounding situations there. But I, I don't think a lot of that's necessarily different than it used to be. But I think that talking about mental health um, is, but expectations, I think, are going up. You know, would we ever do as a country what I'm pretty sure, like 90% sure Germany mandated, which is um, that you aren't allowed to send no. emails after certain <laughs> hours of time? Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought you were about to go down a very different road here. <laughs> Would we no, do as a country what Germany I think mandated? There's, I think there's a law, honestly, that like you can't send work emails after 6 p.m. at night and you can't send work emails on the weekend. Or if you send them, they get they have a special IT infrastructure that like holds it until 8 a.m. on Monday or something like that. If the U.S. Surgeon General is talking about this, I can't imagine. That's just not U.S. like. That's not America like. But it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I would say that we would not optimize for mental health without the understanding that that optimization was actually optimizing for profit. Yeah. Yep. Very so well those, If those two things are connected, then yeah. You were talking about good things. I want to talk about bad things. Do you know my friend Alexander? There was a book written about him. Um, it was called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And I would like to talk about someone else. That had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year. And he's your good friend. And I believe you're like a business mentor, John Foley. Yeah, absolutely. John Foley. I, I really respect John. John Foley is the co-founder of Peloton, ran Peloton for a while. So joking about all the business mentor stuff. We can just get that right, right to brass tacks here. John Foley, according to himself, he recently stepped down this year, stepped down as the CEO of Peloton. Right. And according to himself, he says, everyone can see I had a rocky year. This was not a fun personal balance sheet reset. Okay. Understatement. Reason I want to talk about John Foley is because we have talked about margin loans before and we have talked about the dangers of overextending yourself before. And oh my goodness, this, like, to, to his credit, Everything was going up and to the right, like seemingly forever. And then he just decided to cash in on or not to cash in to double down on that. So in September of 2021. So if you all recall, going back a year, November 2021 was was the peak of like growth stocks, right? NASDAQ. And so Peloton was a part of that. So September 2021, a couple months before that, I could see John Foley just, you know, taking his class getting rocked up on the the Peloton, thinking about (laughs) rowing machines, all kinds excited. 
refreshing that Bank of America account, things looking good. John Foley, September 2021, had pledged as collateral 3.5 million Peloton shares, right? Which is about 20% of his entire Peloton stake. Okay. Now, at the time, again, everything's up and to the right. You might go, all right, 20%? Shoot. I mean, 20%, I could just say. Nothing. Nothing. Doesn't mean anything. They were worth $300 million at that point. So he pledged <laughs> as collateral $300 million in stock. His 20% shares were worth $300 million? Yes. 20% okay. of his stake was worth $300 million. Now that $300 million is worth $30 million. So it doesn't seem like an issue to pledge 20% of your stake until that 20% went until your entire stake is actually only worth 10% of your stake at that point in time. Like then that becomes an issue. So the wall street journal had this piece that they wrote up called Peloton co-founder John Foley faced repeated margin calls from Goldman Sachs as the stock slumped because he took out this big loan and then the stock was getting hit and hit and hit. And so He's saying this isn't true, and I'm just going to take it at face value because I have no reason not to. But he said it's not true what some people are accusing him of, of saying that you had to leave Peloton because you actually couldn't sell enough stock because of like the the regulations of him being on the board and uh, there. Ooh, you had to leave Peloton just to sell enough stock to be able to <laughs> pay your collateral. And he's like, no, 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 that's not that's not why I had to leave. I don't know. I'm going to take it at face value because all business people tell the truth that that is not why he left. But it's just wild to think about even putting yourself into this position. Um, and again, September 2021, 20% probably felt like nothing. This reminds me of, um, yeah. so Musk is about to to take leverage to buy Twitter. Um, that's finally going to go through, it looks like. But when he did the Twitter poll of if she should sell whatever, 20 billion, 10 billion worth of Tesla stock and people voted yes. And then he sold. It turns out he had a tax liability coming up of like $7 billion. He basically had to sell the stock. <laughs> like, I yes. think he just has more fun in public than John Foley does. But there's there's often a uh, motive here for people's actions. And I hadn't heard that this is why you had to leave the company because you had to liquidate your shares to cover your uh, loans. But man, it sure seems to add up even though he's denying <laughs> it, doesn't it? It, it does, but you know, face value. I'm taking a face value. The whole situation is just quite ridiculous, though. Ah, uh, can I one other little factoid here? Because you were mentioning the the Twitter purchase is yesterday. You know Ken Griffin, CEO yeah. of Citadel. So yeah. Ken Griffin, CEO of Citadel. We've talked about him on the pod before. And Citadel is what's the, what's the easiest way to describe what they do? Uh, isn't it a high frequency trading, basically? Yeah, but then you have to just define that. So we'll just skip it. It's He's like a rich front dude. running, <laughs> uh, a possibly illegal way to make a few yeah. fractions of a cent on every trade that happens. So you become one of the world's wealthiest people. There's there you your non-PC definition. <laughs> so Ken Griffin, really wealthy, like multi-billions, right, is what he's worth. So yesterday, I see this headline that said that Ken Griffin um, was going to give Elon Musk money as a part of the... Uh, Twitter purchase, like give him money to buy. And so and I was isn't like, it like $200 million or yeah, $20 million yeah. or something? <laughs> and I, I was, I was like, it's not that that's not a lot of money, but I'm just kind of thinking like he has this $44 billion bill Elon Musk has to pay. And you have a billionaire that comes to you and says, 
I'll, you know, I'll front you. I'll give you some of that money. You would expect B's, not M's, to be related to whatever's happening at that point. It's kind of like if, if you said, Dougal's, I found this house. Perfect house for my family. I'm going to move. We're a little bit short. Can you help me? And I was like, yeah, I got you, bro. Here's $63 to go toward your house. Like, and you go, thanks. Like, I, like I, I'm all in. Let's let's write the PR release. Um, <laughs> yeah. Dougal's is helping uh skippy make the best investment ever and then it's, it's 63 dollars is even steep it's like seven pennies fell out yeah, of your exactly. pocket you're like here you go yeah uh, and the, full faith of my uh balance sheet my personal balance sheet is behind <laughs> you here's exactly and the bigger part is what you stated right after i said that is after i gave you the seven pennies if you were like the wall street journal needs to know about this like how does the pr team jump on this it just feels like a punch in the face anyway small factoid but i thought it was ridiculous yeah, I had the exact same because I read the headline, thought maybe it was 10%, you know, maybe it's 5 billion bucks. And then it was a number that's so small in the grand scheme of those individuals' wealth and the transaction that's taking place, it was completely meaningless. I want to switch gears and just, I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot on the pod, but I've seen a lot of buzz around um, open AI and some of the artificial intelligence that's happening. Um, or that's available to the public these days. And man, this is the first time in a long time that I've uh, had concern for the Google business model because what you can do on OpenAI right now to effectively replace a Google search is just fascinating to me. Can you give a, a brief description of what OpenAI is? Yeah, well, and I don't know that I can do it full di- justice, but I do know that computing power and uh, natural learning algorithms, there's a bunch of different types, have taken massive steps, say, within the past 18 months. So we've had these concepts since the 70s or even earlier that said, we will be able to do X, Y, Z. And I'm a person that is often like, prove it to me. You know, whenever I'm in a business conversation and someone says, well, let's do this, I say, Let's mock it up or let's like run that, you know, let's iterate on top of this and prove it because that's just how I work. That's how my brain is wired. So I think what clicked for me this week is for the first time I've actually been able to prove it. I've actually been able to go in um, using the OpenAI website and a tool called Playground and like do mock Google searches. I've done the same with the image creation stuff. Have you followed at all the... Um, image creation stuff, Dougals, because that's another fascinating rabbit hole that I'd like to talk to you about. No, keep going. So you can find like a really talented, I forget this individual's name, but I'll try and find it. Um, really talented sci-fi artist who does these incredibly elaborate pictures of like people fighting dragons in uh, a mountainous landscape. I mean, you could just imagine that it takes this guy six months to make one of these beautiful images right what OpenAI has done is it's learned that individual's creative style and so you can type in give me image of xyz in this dude's style or this lady's uh style and it will spit out in 30 seconds things that look incredibly realistic that looks like this incredibly talented artist could have done it which is leading to all sorts of copyright concerns because it's effectively stealing that person's like life's work 
in a way where you just have enough computing power that it can recreate it. Super fascinating stuff there. And I can't wait to follow the legal battles because I don't know what's fair. Like it's effectively stealing someone's copyright with computing power that humans could never like the human brain just can't recreate. I know there's people that knock off Picasso's and everything else and do it well, but uh, that's a fascinating thing to watch. And you should play around with uh, Dolly on OpenAI for some image stuff because it's just fascinating. You can be like, give me a self-portrait. You'd obviously have to name yourself in a pixelated style. It'll spit it back in 30 seconds. You can say, give me a picture of this house in Picasso's style. It will do it. It's absolutely incredible. Going back to the point around uh, mental health, this might be a loose tie, but I don't, I don't know if it is. We oftentimes, when we think about automation, we think about automation of repetitive, non-creative tasks. And to what you're saying, this is putting e additional pressure, I would say, on human beings, potentially, to have to continue to like innovate, even on their creativity. Like Your style can't be your style for very long. Because yeah. your style, a machine will take your style. And so you have to, you have to, like the rate of growth of human productivity and ingenuity becomes pretty exponential. I tie that back to mental health because I think that's just like exhausting. <laughs> like having to say, like, I can't, if, if I want to stay on top of the game, I have to constantly change my game is just a lot. It's a lot to yeah. think about. At least, at least it's a lot for me or us or our generation. I think maybe the next generation, it won't be like they might just be used to this. Because they grow up in it. I don't know. The The flip side is to have this at your fingertips. I mean, I've worked with um, like the websites like Fiverr and stuff on creative endeavors before. And um, it's a pretty cool process. You get connected with someone who's really talented, who might not be US based. And you can iterate through things to make logos in two weeks. But I think the future might be you can for free do a very similar task and iterate through things in two hours and have this incredible collection of great art and creative stuff i don't know i don't know where this goes we, so we just said the same thing yeah but different <laughs> sides of the coin right like yeah. right because as a consumer awesome as the creator and the producer more pressure so that's on the image side on the like natural language processing side um i'm gonna give you a couple examples i said Tell me about the Skippy and Dougal's investing podcast. And OpenAI said, the Skippy and Dougal's Talk Investing podcast is dedicated to helping people learn about investing. Each episode features two hosts, Skippy and Dougal's, who discuss various investing topics and offers tips and advice to listeners. The podcast is available for free on iTunes and on the Skippy and Dougal's website. Okay, we didn't write any of that. Like none of those sentences are out in the interwebs like that. It combed through all this information and came up with a very coherent, what is that? A very coherent three sentences with appropriate commas, periods, capitalization. It's like mind-blowing in a way. And if you type that same thing into Google, you get a bunch of links. You're going to get our website. You're going to get other things. It's just not nearly as coherent. Now, this is not without flaws. If you tell OpenAI right now, explain to me like why the world is flat. It will come back and, and it will take the flat earther stuff that's out in the public domain. And it will be like, well, obviously the earth is flat because if you look at the horizon, you see that the earth, like, so 
ingests the garbage that is out there and tries to make a coherent argument of that. Go ahead. Hold on. Sorry. What flat earther stuff is out there? This is a whole it's world. It's all Kyrie Irving, man. You have to go to Duke <laughs> to actually think the world is flat. And there's some stuff out there. But let me give you one more example of the positive side. And then I think my point here is just there's so much potential here. And you still need a human brain to shift, uh, to sort through the nonsense. But, man, if I was a middle schooler right now, I think I'd have OpenAI write all my papers for me. And that's what's going to happen. So here's another question I asked it. I said, what is the best investing method? It said, there's no one size fits all answer to this question as the best investing method will vary depending on the individual's goals, risk tolerance, and investing horizon. However, some common investing strategies include dollar cost averaging, value investing, and index investing. That's like nearly the perfect question to that answer. It just blows my mind. I recently read this book, What We Owe the Future. Have you read that one? No. You know, you know, this year I'm going through all these like, why does the world work? Why am I type books this year? So this is like the falls there. The core premise of the book, I mean, by the title, you can kind of get it is it's like long term thinking effectively. Yeah. Like what's the what's the quote unquote right way for us to think about the, the long term according to this author. And it talk it doesn't talk about open AI, but it talks about AI a good amount and how we should think about it and what we according to the author uh, and what we should do with it. Uh, and this, just what you're describing, just brought back a lot of thoughts, like from from the book, effectively, of how we can think about using this to our benefit and what the potential downsides are. But one of the things that was interesting in the book to me was it was saying that we can't continue at the rate of growth that we have. Like mathematically, we cannot continue at the rate of growth that we have uh, from a population perspective from a GDP perspective, like global GDP perspective, like if you take whatever 2% and extrapolate it, like there's not enough world to be able to have the things that we that we have. And the reason I bring up population is because uh, GDP effectively is, it's in simple terms, is population times productivity, right? Like yeah. you grow your population, you grow your productivity. If you do both, then you can get out there. And he's saying like from a uh, productivity perspective you kind of need if you want to continue growing like you need ai like you have to have machines do work for people because population can't keep up yep. and in fact population is in most of the world that's not africa right now is declining yep. and or africa and india and so i just it's it's fascinating because you have those two sides of the coin that really do exist of we need this if we want to continue with capitalism and gdp growth and this is scary like it's both of those things simultaneously. It's absolutely scary. There's one or two other things I'll mention. The I know you're tired this morning, Diggles, because the new Taylor Swift album dropped last night and you had to stay up and, and listen to it. So um there are people and maybe that was maybe that's two nights ago, I forget. Uh, but there are people that were taking the like the first part of her songs, throwing it into open AI and then having artificial intelligence right the second half of the song and it was like surprisingly similar to the how the second half of the song no, actually I don't goes believe it. I don't yes believe it. can can you i mean as an artist can you imagine being like i put my entire life into these thoughts these lyrics and, and someone else can just look at how humans 
write things like if you get a big enough data set which is what open ai is doing then you can look at how humans solve these problems and and effectively get there this goes back in a way to the chess cheating scandal which we're not going to talk about on the pod but like computers with enough data and enough compute power are just incredible at doing human tasks so it's fascinating we'll keep an eye on it if you guys want to send listener mail uh with questions for ai or uh, financial challenges for AI, I will definitely feed it to the beast and we can uh, report on that in a future episode. That's skippydougals at gmail.com. I think we wrapped. Unless you got Mo. No, thanks guys. Uh, Hit us with a review, please. And um, you can find us on Twitter at skippydougals. On Substack, well, actually, the easiest way is just go skippydougals.com and you'll find links to everything else. Our Substack has all the articles we talk about every week. And uh, we'll see you next week.